Hello and welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name is Anne Frankenstein. And my name is Eamon Murtagh. And in this week's episode, we are on the move. Eamon, where are you moving to? I am planning to move to the southwest, to cider country, to the beautiful city of Bristol. Where the hell are you going? Well, I don't know, but I think it might be Manchester, wherever that is. I haven't even really looked at it on a map, but we'll we'll get into that. Yeah, it's up north. That's all I know. Well, after we've had our little discussion about where we're going, we also have a lovely chat in store for you with the one and only Anna Matronic from Scissor Sisters. We talk to Anna about her three favourite phonographic memories and she tells us all about being a drag queen's buddy and being a world famous pop star. She's incredible. And she's even written a book about robots. Hopefully we'll get to speak to her about that a little bit as well. Doesn't get cooler than that, does it? Shall we pod? Let's get into this thing. Let's head... Where did we say? Up north. And then down Up south. North. All over the place. Down, southwest, mate. Southwest. Let's go. No, don't do the accent. Good <laughs> <laughs> at it. Eamon Murda, you've been away lately, haven't you? Visiting uh, another wonderful city in the UK. Where have you been? What goes around? Well, Anne, I have been down to the wonderful city of Bristol, where I intend to move my whole life. And uh, it is a, a lovely place. I've had a lovely time. We uh, we went all down by the estuary and we went shopping. I popped into Wanted Records and had a chat with John at Wanted, who it turns out plays on Totally Wired Radio like my good self. Wow, so, uh, small world. Yeah. So he gave me a couple of quid off the records. <laughs> so I was going to um, say, it doesn't mean anything unless you can get a discount. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm going to rinse him. I, I promised him, you know, years of upcoming um, customer loyalty. So, well, you're um, not lying there, to be fair. No, no, not at all. So, yeah, I've got a house and uh, we were just making sure that it was all good. Because I went down there before, you see, and um, it is a lovely place. It's really nice. And I, I really like uh, uh, the sort of layout and everything. It's beautiful. We fell in love with it. It's got a great garden. So um, that was all good. And then I came back home and I thought, oh, what about the records? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it is, a, you know, it is an actual logistical problem that, that needs to be thought about that I have a lot of records mm. to put in. They're so beautifully, uh, perfectly, like symmetrically arranged in your current yeah. house. How on earth can you possibly replicate or improve on that in the new place? Well, this is the problem really, because when, when we found where I'm living at the moment in Hackney, um, I did walk in and there's like a recess at the end of the main room, like a, a little, Let's go about 14 inches deep. I walked in, I saw the room, I saw the little recess was just deep enough to hold records. And I thought I could put my entire record collection Mm, on that wall. And it fitted absolutely perfectly. Um, And then over the following 15 years, it kind of sort of doubled in size <laughs> and uh, and uh, now it goes all the way from floor to ceiling and and side to side in the room it's absolutely perfect unfortunately it is now full which means i have to move house <laughs> but then you so, went to the new house you forgot about the fucking record i was so taken by all the garden and all the excitement and stuff i forgot about it. so i went back this time with a tape measure to mm. to see how things could fit um things aren't going to fit in the same way is the conclusion um, in that there just isn't quite the space for that perfect 
snugness. But I'm basically what I'm saying is I'm going to spread out and take over the house. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you can achieve the snugness by buying more records, surely. That's how you make things snug, by That's piling my things plan. you. Yeah. That is my plan. And also, I've noticed, because it's an old house, um, I was worried that, because uh, at the moment my records fit perfectly, like, floor to ceiling. Mm. And I was worried that I might never achieve this glorious feat again. And I went down there and I thought it'd be smaller, like lower, but no, it's taller. In fact, you can fit an extra record box in. <gasps> so it's the perfect, so like it's the perfect size. For, it's not a half a record box. It's a whole full record box that you can add to it's the a, height of the thing. A whole full one, yeah. That is just yeah, serendipity. Good. That justifies an entire lifetime of record collecting, doesn't it? Well, listen, I, I, I don't need to justify it. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. It's almost like it's all been leading to this moment where you can fill up another entire wall. I, I remember when uh, I got to the stage where I'd, I'd gone up and it actually was floor to ceiling on either side and I'd finally got the, the full wall of records. And then I got a little Big Van stool from Ikea. And, uh, I re I, you know, my dream was fulfilled in that I had to climb a ladder to reach the top of my records. Love that. Love that. <laughs> Ideally, I want one of those sliding ones you get in libraries, but you know, you can't have everything. Yeah, that's true. And do you find though that you're, because I feel like I have a little step stool um, in my house, not for, for records, because I'm not quite at, at ceiling height, but like mm. just for, for reaching for things. And it's a cute little step stool generally because my fridge is too tall and even for food right. i'm too fucking lazy to get on the step stool if something requires me to get on the step <laughs> stool it has to be urgent otherwise i'm not doing it do you find the records at the top of your collection get neglected or do you get pleasure from having to to climb up and get them i kind of have deliberately filed them so that uh, genres that i don't uh, use most regularly mm -hmm. are up in the corners so like you know the old 91 hardcore is up in the left, top left corner <laughs> but I do I, I get excited when I get to use my my big damn stool mm. <laughs> okay. ah, give me the ladder darling <laughs> give me the ladder <laughs> <laughs> climbing up oh there she blows yeah no that's that's good no, actually in more often than not I start by trying to file through just by looking up, but then I get a crick in my neck and have to stop and go and get the stool. So. Mm, that's like me with the fridge. I totally empathise there. <laughs> you have a well-stocked fridge, obviously. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to go through it all with a fine tooth comb. Of course like I that. do, of course I do. Um, but that's exciting. So it's all mapped out. You can picture it now where the records are going to go. So that's all in hand. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, it's, it's going to be less of a all-in-one space. It might be on two sides of a room. And you have got some negotiating because there are, there are heaters. The problem is people would rather heat their houses than have a load of meltable records in them. <laughs> so I'm going to have to do something about the radiators. Um, <laughs> Removed him. Just remove the radiator. Who cares if the children freeze? Yeah, just I've to make it tidy them up. I mean, I grew up in an Irish home where to put the heating on was, you know, uh, <laughs> absolute pure devilment. You can't put the heating on when yeah. you just put a jumper on. You get, you need to teach Frida that that phrase. Not to not to stray too far from the uh, from the original topic, but in Irish houses you have a thing called an immersion which heats the hot mm. water. And so yeah. if you want to have a bath you have or a shower, you have to know an hour in advance, put the immersion on. And if you leave the immersion on after you oh, have your bath or shower, well, you may as well pack your bags. Who left yeah, the bloody yeah. immersion on? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is... Listen, I grew up into a fine, upstanding citizen and you might have the same effect on, on Frida. So I say, yeah, get rid of the, get rid of the radiators. 
Yeah, if she needs warming up, we'll put on some dance records and she can jump about the front room. What does she like Slayer? Put on some Slayer for her. (laughs) I told you the time when I I tried to discipline her by playing Slayer at her. (laughs) (laughs) She wouldn't go into the bath to have a bath. And I said, come on, go, go. And she was like, no, Daddy, no, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. I said, right then. And I pulled out Slayer and put it on, thinking that the horrendous din of um, thrash metal might just send her scurrying from the room. And instead, she went absolutely bonkers. I loved it. <laughs> That's my girl. There you go, yeah. But yeah, I'll give her some tough love, and that will enable me to fit more records into the house, which is always <laughs> a goal. Now, far be it from us to impose our will upon you, good listener, but we are going to do just that, because the British Podcast Awards are upon us, and there's just a very slim outside chance that with your help, what goes around might win the Listener's Choice Award. So, if you love us, even if you only slightly like us, go to the BritishPodcastAwards.com slash vote. Type what goes around in the little box. Our little logo will appear. Click on that. Fill out the form. Bosh! Bang! Bob! Ding! Bong! And we're all good. And then we become famous and uh, we get to make more episodes for you. So Can you imagine that. if we vote. won? Just imagine how no. delighted <laughs> Just suspend your disbelief for a second. Imagine how okay. delighted. Imagine how delighted it would make us if we won. We would be hysterical with delight. It I know would I would be. be. I'd be mental, absolutely yeah. beside myself. So, you know, if you want to see that in action or hear that in action, please do. Head to the British Podcast Awards website. Find us, type our name in the box, what goes around, you know the name. And when our logo pops up, click on our little faces, give us a vote. And who knows, we might be absolutely hysterical the next time uh, you you hear us. All because you voted for us. We love you. And Frankenstein. Lady of the Platters. What goes around? <laughs> well, I have spoken to you a little bit about this, but I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the podcast. So, yeah, I've lived in London for 18 years. Jesus Christ, is it 18 years? That makes me feel 18. physically sick. You get less time for armed robbery. <laughs> Isn't it, though? But yes, been over here for 18 years. And um, I mean, I still don't feel like I've particularly conquered London, even though I've done a lot of the stuff that I've wanted to do here. You know, I have a good job and a nice fella and bought and sold a house and all of that stuff that grown ups do. And now Mm. I'm just feeling a little bit old and creaky. And I've sort of been looking for an escape route from London for a little while now because it's a Mm. bit loud and overwhelming these days and um the pair of us turncoats turning our back on the city but i mean you you used to like it <laughs> you used to like london <laughs> i don't i mean i don't i don't mind it i don't know i have a real love like such a cliche but i have a real love hate thing with london sometimes when i'm fucking power walking through the olympic park early in the morning and mm. you know there's vibes coming at me from every direction there's just nowhere like london and other mm. times i'm just like this is a stagnant hellhole and if these people don't get out of my way, I swear to God, I'm going to have some kind of mad public conniption. That's so. actually quite a London attitude, I would say. <laughs> no, but, but when you have all of these attitudes all piled together in close quarters, it gets a little bit explosive. So I have mm. been sort of on the fence about it. But anyway, I'm th- considering, I, for, I was 
me and Tim went to visit Newcastle a little while ago and I absolutely loved it. It reminded me of Dublin in terms of how friendly people are. Lots of great record Mm. shops up there as well. Really pulls its weight in terms of record stores. But uh, it's a little bit small, I think, for me. So now Mm. I'm thinking about Manchester. There there seems to be a lot of... uh, I don't know, a lot of things about Manchester that appealed to me. I've been up there once. I went up there years ago to see um, Herbie Hancock play at the Lowry Centre, which was a lovely gig, except for Mm. this really creepy man who was sitting in front of me who kept... There's always one. There's (laughs) always one. Somehow when I'm around. Um, But there was this guy sitting in front of me with his, like, much younger date, just mansplaining the whole gig to her, like, saying Uh. things like, at one point... Uh, there was some kind of mellow track going on and someone like touched a cymbal um, and uh, the guy turned around to his date and was like, exquisite touch. And I was just like, <laughs> I, had to, I had to leave the room and go out and do some like, I, I, and go and calm myself down. I thought I was going to have a panic attack. It upset me so much. Yeah. Like, well, I had the opposite experience actually because um, I went to see Kraftwerk at the Tate once. Oh. 70 six quid a ticket i might Mm. add something like that plus booking fee Mm. anyway so i'm there at the tate and uh, there was a lot of people who obviously had never seen craftwork and there were a few people who had no idea what or who craftwork were because there was a woman behind me who uh could have done with some mansplaining if i'm honest because she kept saying things like uh, like when um, uh, tour de france started she was like oh is this about bikes and then, uh, <laughs> then there was a Trans Europe Express, and she said, "Oh, it's a little bit like Eurostar, isn't it?" <laughs> That's fucking then, brilliant. I know. This is all the way through the gig. Every fucking song that came on, there was a little question to her friend. That is. So and that my favourite one was uh, when they started Space Lab, and about about three quarters of the way into this beautiful song with the three D visuals, I was totally in the zone and then suddenly I heard her pipe up and goes is Space Lab real? (laughs) (laughs) I had a lovely time in Manchester I was a bit poor because I was a student at the time and and I was I wasn't like a like a a government grant student or I was a a, an unemployed student so I had about 17 pounds a week to live on after I'd paid for everything. So you can imagine that was a bit of a chore. Mm. But I loved the place. And um, the reasons um, I loved it, I think uh, they they probably all sound a little bit cliche, um, but people do talk to you. People are a little more polite than they are here, for Mm. sure. It uh, It was cosmopolitan and had a lot going on. But there was also quite a nice sort of earthy feel to it. And as you got out of the city centre, it became much, you know... It's just salt of the earth, do you know what I mean? Mm. The salt of the earth people, they're, they're really, really, they don't talk bullshit, they don't take bullshit. Um, and they were all very, very, very friendly. I really enjoyed it. I, I like the idea of friendly people, but when you say salt of the earth, that reminds me of, that's a double-edged sword because Dublin people are very salt of the earth, which means mm. that they can be extremely rude. And I don't want to go into a situation where, you know, I'm not being rude, I'm just saying, do you know what I mean? Mm. That kind of attitude where it's just like, you I think, know. again, that that is mostly just people. But um, I would say... You're going to play I mean, Despacito. I, my... I want to hear Despacito. <laughs> uh, Do you know no, what I mean? I don't want to get no, that. I, don't, I didn't really have that trouble. In fact, when I DJed in Manchester, um, they were very good. There are certain areas in London which are better to DJ in. Mm. So like if you play in Brixton, for example, you don't get the hassle you get if you play in West London. Mm-hmm. West London, every five minutes, someone's asking you for something you haven't got and wouldn't play if they paid you. Mm. In Brixton, there's a kind of thing where they recognise 
that a DJ is there to select the music and they kind of let you get on with it unless you're really terrible. <laughs> and I found that the same in Manchester at the time when I was up there. It was, I definitely um, I felt freer to play kind of what I wanted. Afterwards, people would come up to you and sort of say, hey, mate, you were shite. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> while I, I was want. doing it, they were quite nice. I'm very sensitive. Well, I don't want that. I, I don't, well, and, they, they've got a really broad, broad outlook. I used to go to um, Electric Chair, which is Luke Unabonner uh, and his crew. Um, and they used to play all manner of good stuff. Do you know what I mean? But it wasn't like... It wasn't very tightly, it wasn't just hip-hop, it wasn't just funk, it wasn't just house. You know, it was, it was, it was a good a mixture. And I think people up there have quite a broad palette. And I, I, I appreciated that when I was up there, for sure. Mm. Like I say, if anyone has any tips, I did make the mistake of sending a met- message out into the Twitter. I think I probably the most generic way I could have possibly asked the question. I think I said, is Manchester a nice place to live? And this mm. tweet took off. I'm still getting replies now. It had like 600 replies or something. <laughs> and then all these little sub arguments broke up like, oh, you don't want to be walking around Charlton late at night. Well, you know, yeah. such and such a place is just, and just like little arguments going well, on. Listen, like when, I, when I moved to Manchester, it was, uh, it was just after the bomb in the Armdale Centre. Mm. And so it was, you know, this is pre- was a lot of money. IRA? Is that uh, yeah, but and, and after that, a lot of European money went into Manchester, and a lot of the areas that were really, you know, messed up and deprived, got a lot of money and, and built themselves up. So I moved into Mossside before it was rebuilt and mm. and kind of vaguely gentrified. I'm not, it's not totally gentrified, but it's certainly when I moved there, nearly half the houses on Claremont Road seemed to be boarded up. And um, the first thing I, I saw, actually, my friend drove me past Manchester City's old ground on Main Road. He said, oh, look, you love your football. I'll, I'll drive you past Man City's ground, make you feel at home in Manchester on your first day, despite I'm a United fan. But there you go. So we turned the corner and the first thing I saw was a load of scallies setting light to a skip. <laughs> One of those big grunding bins and it was just flames and toxic smoke <laughs> in the air. And, and then the second week I was there uh, on Wilmslow Road, which is like the big road up out of town there was a, a fireworks shop this is september so they're only at the fireworks shop in readiness really for november mm. and you know that sort of thing and before the fireworks shop had actually opened its doors it was robbed because they didn't have any money so they took the fireworks and that had the knock-on effect that every scally in moss side was armed with rockets and <laughs> oh my god the, the stress of walking down the street every night it was like bosnia <laughs> Oh yeah, well, but I am was, hoping for something better, you know. Yeah, well, this was definitely a, a thing of its time because I think uh, since then, like I say, the area's changed tremendously. Mm. I think you'll find Manchester is uh, a fantastic, exciting place, full of music, great nightlife, uh, great music. You know, it's a really exciting place, and I think um, I think you'll do well there. To be quite honest, they love an Irish person there. There's loads of Irish people. They love us everywhere. Come on, we're not true. like Irish. We're people. the best. <laughs> we travel. <laughs> well, I'll report back after I've been on my okay. visit. I'm I'm withholding okay. my judgment until then. Nice one. What we're gonna What we're gonna What we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Uh, uh. 
Joining us today is a songwriter and vocalist who first came to the world's attention as a founding member of legendary synth art disco pop group Scissor Sisters. She's also a DJ at the forefront of London's underground disco scene, a prolific broadcaster presenting several TV and radio shows across the BBC, including Eurovision uh, and her late night mainstay Dance Devotion on Radio 2. She's a committed robot lover as well, having published a book called Robot Universe a few years back and of course been inspired by that obsession to adopt one of the greatest stage names in contemporary music animatronic welcome to the podcast thank you so much what an in- what an intro thank you <laughs> it's a privilege and, uh, you have a really great name too and frankenstein <laughs> is it frankenstein or frankenstein right it's Frank. it's 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 it sounds how it's spelled ridiculous <laughs> yeah it's um, fucking awesome no i i look up and ad- i look up to and admire yours i wish i'd been i wish i'd been so clever i feel so dowdy now <laughs> <laughs> Everybody should have a drag name. Amen. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. working at Veronica Smile was my my alternative Ooh. name. Ooh, yeah, was back I in like the day. that. It's nice, isn't it? I think it's something nice about that. The, the yeah, sort of you could be you could be Ronnie Smize. Oh well. yeah, I'm smizing. Oh, I love hey. it. In the age of the mask, we must all learn to smize. Do you know? Indeed, it's important. Indeed, my smize game is it has been uh, <laughs> has been really really upped. And uh, so much so, I have so, so, so many more crow's feet. Is it smizing <laughs> or, just, or, just, or, just, or just the pandemic stress? How come, how come bloody, uh, how come what's your name doesn't have any crow's feet from smizing? Something who? funny going on there. Your woman who invented it. Tyra. 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 Because she, she uses Vaseline. <laughs> I don't know. We all need more Vaseline. She's a goddess. She doesn't, she doesn't have the same rules that we do. She's, correct. Know. Correct. <laughs> Um, so you're here to share your phonographic memories with us, obviously. But first, let's dig in a little bit to your musical background, um, mm. because you have pulled in influence in your musical career from all kinds of directions. You're kind of a, a more focused on dance music now. But what mm. what what kind of music did you grow up with? What influenced you? What sort of led you in the musical direction that you're now focused on? Um, I was born in 1974 mm-hmm. and uh, that was also kind of the the year that was also the year that Blondie formed and mm. it was the year of the first remix. So I feel like those two things go <laughs> really hand in hand. <laughs> it's a sign. And I was born on the same I have the same birth date as Larry Graham from Slime. Oh wow. Stone. Cool. Um so yeah, I um I grew up in a house with uh, a very strong female influence. My mother and my grandmother are both from the South. And uh, my grandmother was born in 1904, my mother in 1935. So they were a little bit older and I had a little bit, my and their sort of pop culture references were much older than the normal parent. You know, my mom was a good 15, 20 years older than, mm. than a lot of the mothers of my, uh, of my friends. So my mom really loved the blues and um, R&B and 60s Motown Stax records, that sort of thing. It loved Otis Redding. Um, and then my grandmother loved jazz. Uh, she was a flapper in, <laughs> in the South in the 20s and, and uh, loved uh, hot jazz, mm. Benny Goodman and 
um, Artie Shaw and Woody Herman and and those those sorts of cats. Um, I I later on re realized that my I come from party people. <laughs> they like good time music. Good to say that. Good time music. I don't think there's anything cooler than saying my grandma was a flapper. I mean that's that's yeah like, yeah. And my awesome. mom loves Zydeco music, which is Amazing. you know a real a real specific Cajun mm -hmm. form of dance music and. So I had a I had a really interesting um, range of influence or or exposure when I was when I was growing up. And then my mom being a painter, she's a naturally very creative person. My grandmother was also very creative and was an incredible, incredible seamstress. She could sew anything, anything. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, we, we were always talking about things that we liked and talking about books that we read or movies that we saw and music was part of that. And mm -hmm. so my musical education had a lot to do with my relationship with my mom. And I'll never forget when I was, I think I was maybe seven, I heard Tutti Frutti for the first time, <laughs> Little Richard. <laughs> And she was like, yeah, this is Little Richard. And I was like, I love this. And she and she was like, you love this? And she was like, let's go and get some Little Richard right now. And we got in her VW Beetle and drove to Fred Meyer, which was not that far away. And we bought, a, will never forget, a gatefold Little Richard double LP greatest hits collection. That kind of started us on this role of, and I think it was kind of a rediscovery role for my mom of that sort of music, soul, high energy soul. And she mm -hmm. really liked the just like real super high energy stuff. Uh, Junior Walker and the All Stars, Mustang Sally, Wilson Pickett, mm -hmm. Jackie Wilson, all that stuff. And so I started making mixtapes for my mom to paint to of this kind of music because she found it really, really helped her process. <laughs> and that kind of got me, that got me into things. And then I was listening to the radio and I, you know, I was born in 1974. So, uh, yeah, the first record I ever bought was, oh no, it's Devo. Oh. Wow, what a and, start. Uh, That's yeah, the best was... first record purchase yeah. I think we've ever heard here. You must be lying. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. That was my first full-length album. I've been buying 45s before that. Um, but this was the gold, you know, this is the golden age of new mm. waves. So yeah. it was just, you know, I'll never forget the first time I saw Annie Lennox on TV, Sweet mm. Dreams video. Yeah. And she kind of looked like my mom because my mom had, was very striking, had short red hair and liked a, you know, a heavy, smoky kind of mod 60s eye. And so I, you know, the minute I saw Annie, I was like, <gasps> who is that? And yeah. she kind of kind of giving me a little bit of mom so I, um, <laughs> I immediately was just like yes and was obsessed with them what a perfect petri dish to be yeah. growing up <laughs> yeah. in that's amazing I mean did you when you saw Annie Lennox and even like back to when you first heard little Richard was it on your mind like oh I want to do that too or were you just at this point oh. kind of 100 yeah. percent because i was a muppet baby as well so <laughs> when i was a little kid the our my one of my first film i remember seeing in the not remember but the first film i went to see in the cinema was star wars and mm -hmm. that was when mm -hmm. the muppet show was first on tv so 
I grew up loving Miss Piggy and the Count were my two favorites, and <laughs> uh, and that says a lot. And <laughs> and I definitely, definitely wanted that life that was depicted on the Muppet Show, which was yeah. ba- the backstage chaos and then the onstage magic that yeah. would happen. Yeah. I- I found a, uh, um, uh, I've got a daughter who's like six, and uh, I think the year mm. before last, I found a, like a, we were in, in the record shop, I was dragging her around the record shop, so I give her a colouring book, she sits in the corner. Anyway, so she wanted to have a look through the things, we found a Muppet record, I brought mm. it home, and I thought I'd buy, buy it for her, stuck it on, God, it's brilliant, I mean, yeah. it's, it's really laugh out loud funny. And yeah. just and all the songs are played to an incredibly high performance, you know. And just I couldn't believe the the, the actual level of. I kind of thought it, it, it'd sound a bit bit sort of creaky around the edges, but yeah. it sounded absolutely fabulous. I mean, yeah. all the way through. And it was such an interesting education as a young young kid as well, because they had all these the uh, really died in the wool Broadway stars: Carol Channing, yeah. Ethel yeah, Merman, yeah. Danny Kaye. Um, in addition to people like Alice Cooper and uh, <laughs> and things like that, and so I got a real I got a real education. Um, oh my God, the Lou Rawls episode of The Muppet Show is one of the most sublime things of all time. Him doing Mr. Cellophane, get yeah. out of town. So yeah. how, so how I find it really interesting how you talk about how the 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 chaos appealed to you too. Like obviously you had this realistic idea of what it was going to be like. You know, in the pop world, you weren't going into it kind of blindfolded. Um, <laughs> because obviously, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like, you know, like what we were talking about earlier with TV, it's kind of like there's, there are all these working parts that yes. you, you sometimes fail to see when you're on the other side of it. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it, when you go to a show, it's a really special occasion mm-hmm. and you don't think about the fact that, you know, for the person on the stage, this is just Tuesday. You know. <laughs> <laughs> This is their job. So what makes it special? Yeah. Guess what? It's the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the audience that makes it special. Um, well, let's go back to you growing up then and picking up this Devo record because like we said at the top, like obviously your, your musical career has taken influence from all sorts of places and your personal style as well. Can you talk to us mm. about how your, your style and your fashion sense tied into your sort of developing taste in music? Oh, sure. Well, it started with my mom, who was very fashionable. And uh, her her fa- her sort of era was was the mid to late 60s. And that's kind of when her style crystallized. Um, and so she loved that um, that kind of late 60s Verushka style with like mm. the heavy eye and like a turban and a caftan with lots of jewelry, you know, Amazing. like that kind of thing. Um, So my mom, yeah, my mom was really into uh, quote unquote ethnic style Mm. things, (laughs) which is um, a little bit problematic now. But um, uh, yeah, my mom never, yeah, never saw, never saw a chunky amber and Berber silver necklace. She couldn't, you know, she didn't want (laughs) to, she didn't want to grab and buy. Mm. Anyway, so um, then uh, New Wave, obviously, 80s fashion was really big for me. And my first favorite band and first uh, real kind of fashion influence was Duran Duran. This is going to be interesting because they, and I've always had men uh, as equally as fashion icons as women. Um, And yeah, I cut my hair like Simon Le Bon when I was, 
10. <laughs> and uh, it was all about a fedora on the back of my head and, you know, blazers rolled up at the sleeve yeah. with, uh, or maybe two um, oversized uh, shirts, collared shirts. Maybe one was slightly larger than the other, so I could wear that one as a jacket over the other one, you know, oh, nice. that sort of look. Lots of scrunchy socks. And then um, and then I was really into, oh, well, and I, I, I really think Duran Duran was kind of like the gateway drug into all things British, and British fashion was really big. And then like late 80s, it was all about that curiosity killed the cat look, which was mm. like still the fedoras and the hats on the back of the head, but like things getting oversized and the, and the big sort of chunky shoes with the scrunchy socks. Love that look. So cute and good. <laughs> um, yeah. And then um, then Manchester was a real big thing for me. And I loved that sort of baggy ski sweaters, mm -hmm. jumpers, everything baggy and big chunky shoes and Doc Martens and things like that. And then later on, ugly vintage dresses. <laughs> <laughs> I love those too. Yes. Although I, I love a caftan and a turban and some amber oh, jewelry yes, as well. God. Yeah, why oh, not? yes, God. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, and then Kate and Cindy from the B-52s, massive, oh, huge, yeah. huge influence. And then it's always, it's always so hard sending in musical choices, but I, I sort of kicked myself afterward for not putting in a bong water song. Um, and referencing Anne Magnuson, who's a massive influence of mine. People don't really know about her so much, even in the States. An amazing lady in the 80s during the sort of downtown arts art scene uh, was the manager of Club 57, which is where Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring and, and Kenny Scharf and mm -hmm. artists would hang out. And there were amazing performers like Joey Arias and... John Sex and Klaus Nomi who would perform mm. and and she was uh, this she is this incredible lady and puts on amazing shows where she uh, sings songs and tells stories and she was a real she was a real sort of north star for me for mm. a long time I I really sort of fashioned I imagined that I would that that's how my my creative career would manifest and it it sort of did. <laughs> I mean, I like singing songs and telling stories is yeah. how, how, you know, yeah. I love the way you've got such a, a, a comfortable relationship with um, quite an eclectic set of things. And some of that, you know, I guess when you, when you were closer to here, there was uh, quite a lot of um, drawing of a line. Do you know what I mean? Oh, the the, the sure. trend is over. Do you know what I mean? And then we're going to do something else Oh, now. there was you, here too. I was a real musical snob. For a long time, and I still had varied tastes. I was never super into pop music, and mm. I was I was kind of annoying. I was I no, I'm gonna I'm just gonna admit it right now. I was I definitely had annoying hipster tendencies uh, for <laughs> a long time, and uh, and it was being in Scissor Sisters that really chilled out a lot of that. It was just like just calm down, and 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 everybody has their their own taste and there is magic in all things and mm. there's something for everybody out there and that relaxed me to a point where i could just start enjoying things and so now i don't i don't believe i don't believe in such things as guilty pleasures oh, i love that yeah. and that was my experience when i first discovered scissor sisters too because i had kind of just started thinking maybe i could take djing seriously i was a teenager mm. and mm. um 
I remember hearing Comfortably Numb, which I mm. later picked up on on Picture Disc. And I remember thinking, like, what is this? Is this pop? Is this dance? Can mm. I get away? Like, what what signals do I, you know, very concerned about making sure I fit yeah. into a, a certain yeah. niche as a DJ. Mm. And then sure. I realized it was just like, it's just fucking fun. It's just great mm. fun music. And it's like, it is really cool, but it's cool because it doesn't really give a shit about mm. B- mm. pretending to be one thing or another. And I wore that yep. picture disc to death. Yeah. I still have it in fact. <laughs> My favorite DJs and the DJs I take inspiration from are uh, David Mancuso, mm-hmm. Larry yeah. Levan, Nikki Siano, the people who sort of made disco. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of my favorite descriptions of disco is that it's a hybrid music. And so that means that these DJs took all of these different kinds of music and that's something you you really hear and absorb from David Mancuso in his in his interviews. He talks about the spirit of a song. It isn't about um, yeah, it isn't about anything other than than the spirit of the music, and that's what he was looking for. And so that's really what what I'm about as well. Well, should we dig into your first phonographic memory then? Sure. Because you've, you've spoken about this as your gateway into industrial and subsequently to dance music as well. Uh, yes. Stigmata Ministry. Talk to us about this. <laughs> um, Absolutely this, banger. <laughs> I, it really is. The first dance club I ever went to was called the Confetti Club in downtown Portland. And it was a, I think it was over 21 on the weekends and then Thursdays they had a teen night and so yeah (laughs) so and it was a new wave night this was let's see 15 it was like 1989 Mm. 88 89 yeah probably oh yeah it was 89 rave hadn't even that like whole notion of rave hadn't even made it over to Mm. my part of the states yet we were still very much in the new wave thing, and and um, I also loved uh, I also loved soul music of the time and New Jack Swing and all that stuff. Tony, 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 give me that. Um, anyway, so <laughs> yes, I was listening to that at the same time as Ministry. So I was going to say um, what what a mix that is. <laughs> I know, but I can't I can't I can't help it. I just like those things. That's the spirit. Um, yeah, and um, a bop is a bop is a bop. And, yeah, hundred um, percent. This was the first time I had heard songs like Front 242, Headhunter. Mm. Oh, great. And this was a song that I heard on the dance floor for the first time. And it was one of the first 12 inches I ever bought. I think the, the, the only other one I had bought before this was Tainted Love, Soft Cell. Mm. I wore the grooves out of this record <laughs> and I just yeah this was kind of this first kind of burgeoning connection not to like oh I like the sound of that guitar or oh, I like the way the piano sounds or oh, I like the voice mm. it's just like no I like this sound what's that what's that sound yeah. that sound is so cool and um, this is obviously, you know, land of rape and honey when ministry were, were really <laughs> going, going dark. And mm. um, and yeah, I bought I remember buying that album and I already had a punk thing. Um, I, I liked, you know, Dead Kennedys and Suicidal mm. Tendencies went through a skate punk phase when I was 11. So I already liked that kind of hard thing but there was something about the mixture of the beats mm. and the 
that cold synthesized new wave thing it just was like it was just everything that that uh spoke to me at that moment and still does yeah i mean it's one of those ones where um because i remember that coming out and Mm. it's just a brutal 12 inch i mean it is brutal absolutely if you've not heard it just imagine yourself standing in the middle of a club and five people hitting you over the head with saucepans (laughs) and shouting in your face they don't give themselves over to any of the songwriting things that none of the norms are there it starts off with just this incredible repeating drum machine that that it just is banging out a rhythm that isn't even like your standard four four or anything it's just like yeah and then you get these monster riffs and the guy screaming this i mean it is not a mess around record there there's that sound that sounds like is it static is it a wash is it a (laughs) guitar no it's him screaming going yeah It's one of those ones where um, it would also be a perfect tool to to sort out who's going to be in your gang and who isn't. Do you know what For I mean? Sure. You know, if, For if sure. you can't deal with this one, then yeah. Yeah, okay, I'll put you in that pile. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But the people who got that record, mm-hmm. um, they, you know, it's no wonder that it opened up dance music and rave and all that sort of thing to so many people. Because yeah. I think if you were looking at it now, it'd be quite hard to understand almost what it's got to do with it. The use of the electronics, especially in that it kind of it, it, it allowed people to listen, as you say, to, to the sound rather than to melodies and yeah. you know, sweet lyrics and all that sort of stuff. It's a it's a being. It's like you've got to jump into that. Yeah. And then later on, when I was uh, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I went. I was a regular at this place called the City Nightclub, and and God bless the City Nightclub and Lanny mm-hmm. Swerdlow, the guy who who ran it. It was an all ages club. It didn't didn't serve alcohol, and mm-hmm. it was a gay club. And downtown uh, downstairs there was the New Wave and Top Forty room, and upstairs was the industrial room, and that's mm-hmm. where. I would work out my frustrations to, mm. you know, ministry and KMFDM and Leibach and, right you know, Meat Beat Manifesto and oh, yeah. Nine Inch Nails and, and the like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I mean, that is that scene was not in any way commercial. And it was, it, yeah. was, it was a real like, do you know, what? I'm just going to ignore the rest of this stuff and just like, oh, yeah. get crazy. See, see how mad it could get. And then it, when I was a senior in high school, I became really close uh, with 
um, and and really really dear friends with um, a woman Michelle who had my both our third year in in high school we we had both been exchange students Hmm. so I went to South Africa for a year um, and she went to Germany Hmm. and we both connected because we lived near each other and we also had that crazy experience where we're coming back to America to a tiny high school in a sort of weird redneck area of southwest Washington state and we both just were like where are we and who the fuck are these people and nobody (laughs) understands anything and when I you know shared my love of ministry and these sorts of things she countered with my life with a thrill kill cult and mm. einstutzende neubauten and i thought you know then i love them as well and so there's <laughs> there's oh yeah there's i i went deep down the industrial rabbit yeah. hole in the in the early, early 90s when you're that age and and you you find something extreme that you latch on to as a lot of people do when you find that other person that gets it God, that is a, a relief and a wonderful thing, you know. Magic, yeah. Michelle was a lifesaver. Michelle and my and my other friend Nicole, they were my two, my two lifelines. Uh, senior year in high school, and still friends with them now. Yeah, that's interesting that you still had that experience of feeling sort of. Um, alienated in terms of your music taste because obviously you grew up with with such in such a rich kind of open-minded musical oh, environment oh, that's my family but I went to high school at Prairie High School where the majority there is a Mormon church on wow. the corner of the property and um, I went to school with a large group of apostolic Lutherans. Right. You might that not know serious. them, but but um, they're they're derogatorily referred to as bunheads. Um, they are not allowed to dance. The women oh are not God. allowed to wear makeup or cut their hair, and most of them are married by the or well, many of them are married, and some even marry uh, as soon as they leave high school, and some married before they leave high school, and and a great great great. Um, a contingency of uh, good old American rednecks who mm. uh, drive to school in uh, pickup trucks with rifle racks with, um, <laughs> and I'm not kidding, this is not an exaggeration, there's a lot of this in my high school, and um, uh, bumper stickers that say, if you don't like Hank Williams Jr., you can kiss my, and then there's a picture of a donkey. <laughs> I mean, there's a place for Hank Williams Jr., but you don't oh, have to sure. be so aggressive about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, they, it was aggressively that. And you know, when, I, when you're a weirdo, mm. you're also kind mm. of a target, and and um, and then you know there were rumors which were obviously true. Uh, oh, no, I hear your dad's a faggot and has AIDS. You know that sort of thing. So yeah. you know that kind of thing. So yeah. So there was a whole lot of get me the fuck out of here. I'm picturing Footloose. Footloose without any of the fun. (laughs) (laughs) Footloose with an industrial soundtrack. We definitely (laughs) had fun. We definitely had fun. And it was also the early 90s, so like grunge was exploding and there was a lot of really fun stuff to do. We just didn't we just couldn't do it around our high school we had to get in a friend's car and go to portland yeah. which was conveniently located 
uh, just over the bridge. Well, it just sounds like it sounds like it's it's kind of good to have that impetus, isn't it, to get away yeah. and rebel a little bit. Yes. Although you know. I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that you know I can imagining the school disco and you're going up to the DJ goes, "Have you got stigmata by Ministry?" <laughs> <laughs> See, seeing the ensuing carnage would be wonderful. <laughs> I'll never forget when I was 15 years old and I <laughs> go to the Valentine's dance. I think it was the Valentine's dance. And I went with this guy, Matt, who looked just like Morrissey, um, mm. Mormon Morrissey, we called him. And, um, <laughs> and, um, he, he, yeah, he was really sweet, uh, much nicer than, than I yeah. imagined, the real Morrissey. Mm. And um, I'll never forget, uh, Tainted Love came on. And my sister, who's a total goofball, Kermit to my Miss Piggy, um, <laughs> led a bunny hop around the around the dance floor to Tainted Love. Now, every time I hear Tainted Love, I look for my sister in a bunny hop. Aww. Aww. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Let's talk about your your goth and punk. I don't want to call it a phase because mm. it seems like everything was happening concurrently. Yeah. Uh, but you've chosen Susie and the Banshees for your next phonographic mm. memories. Tell us about this one. I... Uh, I have loved Susie from the time I don't even remember how old I was, but it was it was in these sort of formative years. It was I think it was eleven because uh, my sister brought home the Cure head on the door, which she bought mm-hmm. uh, by a friend's recommendation, and she didn't like it. And I heard it, and you know the clouds parted and angels sang out, or maybe the opposite <laughs> <laughs> reaction because it is God. Um, but I just it was one of the one of it still is one of my favorite albums yeah. that same friend who recommended the cure said have you heard Susie?" and i was going to a record store at that point called dudley's new and used records uh in in uh, downtown portland this is what before we had moved to rural southwest washington dudley's was one of those you know quintessential 80s record stores where you go in and every inch of it is covered in posters um and they're all they all have stickers on them um mm. <laughs> you know saying what where they are what bin they're in and how and how expensive they are and um and yeah all the records are laid out you've got your new releases and then bands alphabetically and then a massive massive section of 45s and so um i remember this image of Susie uh that was right by the door with <laughs> she's holding a an arms full of baby's breath <laughs> and I remember looking at her and just and thinking that she looked like something out of um, silent movies because I used to watch a lot of silent movies with my grandmother and just loving her look, not knowing who she is. And then this friend of my friend Kate or of my sister Kate um, said, yeah, have you have you heard Susie? And and forget about it. It was over <laughs> from there. Yeah, yeah. So in love. So in love.
Susie's one of those um, people. You know, Debbie, Harry, Susie, maybe Annie Lennox. They, yeah. it, it just seemed to me that they, were, they both, all of them had like decades of getting everything completely right. Do you know, yeah, like the, yeah. the, the yeah. look was perfect. They never took a yeah. bad photograph. The music yeah. wasn't just successful. It was mm. innovative and interesting. Mm. And I mean, Susie is probably still, I matter of fact, just this morning, I was flicking through Facebook or whatever, and a picture came up of Susie quite late on. I think it was probably around 2000 or something. It was mm. her like backstage at Lollapalooza with um, Ice tea. Oh, you I know? saw this photo. <laughs> Did you see that she photo? She looks gorgeous. So hot and so cool. And then, you know, this total punk icon yeah. with this hip hop star, you know, and yeah. just and totally comfortable and just, I mean, just amazing. I, and I don't love forget what Ice-T was at that time, too. Yeah. He was causing all the controversy because that was cop killer age. Yeah, cop killer. I'm and now he's body America's yeah. favorite cop. <laughs> so, how the tides turn funny but she was always always cool she always seemed to be in control of how she yeah. was presented if yeah. she didn't like an interview she would just say nah that's it I'm out there was a giant dose of I don't give a fuck just a great way to carry yourself through life yeah yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. you can see how like you know pattern is forming in terms of all of these um, icons coming into your life and inspiring you and moving you in different directions in terms mm -hmm. of your taste. But like, let's talk about how you got into it. Like, if Ministry was one of the first 12-inch singles you bought, is that something that you then kind of used with DJing? Did DJing come first and then mm. singing come after? Or how did all this kind of, you know, figure into your, your career? The the first, my, my I, I always had a really low deep voice even when I was a little kid I used to get made fun of by boys uh, and asked if I was a boy because I had a really deep voice so when I was in choirs when the kids had to sing I was I couldn't sing because they always think really really high this and I just couldn't I couldn't sing like that I didn't sounds like how. you can sing like that but <laughs> because I yeah because yeah, 10 years of singing next to Jake Shears, you learn how to do <laughs> yeah, that. But when you're a little kid, um, and I'm not a natural singer, I'm just not, a, a, it, it wasn't something that I ever felt like I could, I was able to do. But I was an actor and I was a performer. So in, in high school, I, I was really into acting. Every year in high school, my, uh, my high school had the air band competition. And mm. in soft, my sophomore year, second year of high school, me and my friends formed um, a group and performed two Susie and the Banshees songs and Book of Love, Witchcraft, over a uh, a pot with dry ice, like incanting. So funny. Cool. Um, and we we were the giant upset win. We actually won the whole thing. And um, and so that was kind of like my first sort of taste of what would later become drag and, and drag cabaret. I was always really into music and I was always, you know, dancing in my, in my bedroom. I was dancing on dance floors on the weekends and I was making mixtapes and making mixtapes for friends. So I always think of that as my first foray into DJing was like, mm. was thinking about an arc for a, a kind of a journey, uh, you know, on the, on the, 45 minute front of a 90 minute cassette, <laughs> you know, each yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so 
uh, there was that. I was really someone who would be at, at a club and I wouldn't go on the dance floor unless I liked the song. And if I didn't like the song, I would leave the dance floor. I was one of those oh, annoying ones. I was a tough crowd, yeah. You make my life hard, people. Yeah. Like I know, but I'm not like that anymore. Thank God. I'm not like that anymore. Uh, you're on the, you're I, on the list. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm, now I'm, now I'm, I'm, I'm much more, uh, much more calm. <laughs> and um, I never really thought about DJing because I guess I always thought it was a guy a guy thing. Mm. Mm. And it was such a sausage fest and it was such a, you know, there's that pissing contest that happens yeah. with any any musical conversation of like, how much do you know? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I always had such varied musical taste that I never really went whole hog into one genre. Yeah. And, and, I, and I bounced around a lot. So I never really felt like I could become a, an industrial DJ because I have a lot of industrial music or, um, and at the time you DJed with vinyl. Yeah. I just didn't have, me hauling around records like that, that I don't I need <laughs> very <help>. sensible <laughs> I don't know I mean it just didn't even enter my brain that that was a an option for me mm. I um so anyway so when I was 20 I was working in Starbucks I had been out of high school for a while I was at I was at a local community college Clark College go Penguins I was working with this this really lovely guy James and uh James's friend L came in and L worked at Betsy Johnson uh, mm -hmm. down the street and L was one of those women that I just looked up to she was glamorous always decked out in head to toe Betsy Johnson always with like candy floss pink fun fur cropped jacket over a vinyl mini skirt with knee high platform boots I mean just so Amazing. cute and sexy and dar darling and fun and like uh anyway and so she was amazing she's this ballsy amazing girl and so she came in one day and she said what do you do like do you perform right and I said yeah yeah um and she said she was getting together with some people and forming a burlesque troupe um and this was at uh this is a place called the Paris Theater, which is a historic landmark, so they couldn't tear it down, but it had gone into crazy disrepair and had mm. been a porn theater for years and all this stuff. And then this queen, Betty Bomber, maxed out all of her credit cards and signed the lease and had the place and, and uh, started a drag show. And uh, I was, it was four real girls and two drag queens and we were the Paris girls, amateur girls in action. Yeah, that's where I learned the art of the lip sync and <laughs> learned how to use Elmer's glue to make my eyebrows disappear and um, how to wear fake lashes and how to really nail a limp, lip sync. And Betty had... Um, auditions for the MC who which of the girls is most comfortable on the mic and all mm. yeah it was me <laughs> and so I became the MC and I just and that was where I cut my teeth mm. that's where I met my friend Michael and actually this year is the 25th anniversary of Michael and me moving to um, San Francisco together and then that's where I fell into tranny shack and mm -hmm. then I became a drag queen, basically, ostensibly for three years, moved to New York, started knockoff, and that's where I met Jake. 
That's amazing. Yeah. So the drag came before all of it, before the drag DJ, came before, before all the... of it. Amazing. That's yeah. so cool. That's a proving yeah. ground for you. <laughs> oh my God. Is it ever? I mean, the drag, the drag club is one of the most brutal places. If mm. you are not liked, they will boo you. Or you, I mean, you'll know. You'll know if your number is tired, honey, for sure. It must be, it must be so strange for you because like drag, you know, obviously it, it was always a thing, but it was like reasonably fringe. And then obviously over the past yeah. 10 years or so, it's become so much more at the forefront of the culture you know people yeah. in their everyday pe- people you know use phrases that were probably only heard in like ballrooms um, yeah. and they're probably they might not even be aware of you know they might not even watch RuPaul's Drag Race so much stuff right. has been adopted into the common vernacular oh, sure. is, is that weird for you to to see that no, because all of those things bubble up to the surface eventually mm-hmm. you know I've seen every single underground thing have a moment so no 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 I mean you know I was I was 15 years old and uh my father had died of AIDS and I was very feeling very isolated and alone and here comes Paris is burning and Mm -hmm. that documentary opened my eyes to um to a world where people didn't have to keep that kind of thing um, in the closet like I did and where and mm. and that's where I learned first about the the concepts of chosen family and people coming together through uh, l- the love of a shared aesthetic and um, and creating a, a whole beautiful ecosystem and and supportive network and that inspired me so much and so you know, I saw I saw Vogue uh, bubble up to the surface, and that I mean, you can't get more more black and gay than that. And <laughs> the, and here it is. And so, no, I'm not surprised that that all of this stuff has gone mainstream, and rightly so. Um, I'm so glad that that drag performers can now have a, a, reti- a retirement. You know, because drag is, you do it for the love. It was, I made $10 every week at Trader Jack. $10. You deserved every penny. It was was cab fare. I mean, it it was enough to get me to my door at the end of the night. And that's all really that mattered was that and the five minutes of juice I got on stage. I love that. The juice, the juice. And the chaos, presumably backstage as well. Oh God! So much chaos. Feeling a real, a real segue and move here to your, you know, looking at your choices because we've started off with this ministry and you know the insane kind of otherworldliness yeah. of it all. Oh, and, and then, what I well, what I didn't say about Susie was this song "Red Light" was my very, very first solo drag number. Perfect. And I was in all all red and a red wig and red lashes. That's when I learned the 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 dangers of lip gloss and wigs and overly long <laughs> lashes and and long loose hair and how all of that. And so um so yeah, so this was my that this was my first uh my first ever drag number and I went on to do many, many Susie songs mm. at uh at T-Shack and uh, 
and hosted Susie Knight and uh, yeah, all that good stuff. Amazing. And it's wonderful because it's like it, it, it brings out this kind of theatrical edge, uh, which Susie, of course, is with oh her makeup God, and the way yeah. she presents herself is such a master at. And then, you know, your last choice, which <laughs> is MFSB Love is the Message, the Danny Crivet edit, is just like, you know, I mean, I watched Vibe those. shift. I, yeah, but, but what I'm saying is I can. I, I was looking at it before and I was thinking, yeah, that, maybe it is a vibe shift. But actually, the way we've talked about it, I yeah. can see how that's come around. You know what I mean? I can yeah. understand how how you've been on that journey and how mm. suddenly, like, you, you've got the elements of dance music, you've got the elements of theatricalness, you've got the burlesque thing coming together and the performance, and then just the sheer joy and love of a song like "Love Is the Message." Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think of that song not so much of as a song, but as a lineage. Because that song started off as, you know, a song by MFSB, then in come the three degrees, then comes um, the the success of the disco mm. and people championing this record like Nikki Siano and mm-hmm. David Mancuso. And then in comes Tom Moulton to make this extended version. Mm. And I don't know if you know the, the story of the... Uh, organ solo, the keyboard solo in in, in the in the remix. Oh God, this is one of my favorite favorite ever disco stories. Tom Moulton, who is remixing this stuff, who has been um, working with uh, the the famous Philly producers Gamble and Huff. Mm-hmm. Um, Leon Huff is a keyboard player, and <clears throat> he's notorious for uh, for laying something down or playing something and and not and and not liking it and not feeling it and just kind of mm. leaving the room and just being like no nah, I'm not really feeling that he's kind of a stickler to once it's on the track it just stays that way right. and Tom knew this about about uh Leon Huff so he he wanted he wanted him to come and just lay down some some a little bit of like you know keyboard flavors some some electric mm. piano mm, magic on top on top of the of the track to to extend it and so he i can't remember if he unscrewed the light bulb or if he put a piece of tape over it but he he made it so that the recording light in the booth didn't come on when Uh when leon (laughs) went in the booth and so uh leon goes in the booth tom is in the in the uh other room he he's like, all right, uh, I'm just I'm just gonna run the tape and you and you just play, and just scratch on top of it, and and he puts it up and Leon plays for like two three minutes and is like, nah, nah, I'm not feeling it, and just like gets up and walks out. <laughs> Tom is like, thank you, <laughs> and that's Fabulous. what you hear on the track. And so yeah. I I just love that story so mm-hmm. much, and and every time I hear that, I just think about that moment of genius <laughs> that ch- moment of genius and moment of chance that Tom Moulton had to to uh, disengage that recording light um, and then that song then of course uh, remixed by Shep Pettibone and it becomes Soul, Soul, Soul Orchestra ooh I love it it then becomes basically a black anthem a gay anthem it becomes the Vogue Ball anthem mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes, and you can hear the, the, you know, the beginning strains of that in Madonna's Vogue, mm. 
Mm. Um, so it just, yeah, that song is is a lineage. It's it's, yeah. and it's still one of those songs that you hear pouring out of people's cars um, in Brooklyn today. And and you know, every every time I hear it, I'm on the street. You know, you look at the people and you're like, hey, what is the message? <laughs> <laughs> I did love that um, the show Pose when they they had the, the, the DJ in Pose, and like <laughs> for, for like two or three weeks he's just playing Love Is the Message over and episode. over and over again. It's that brilliant. Just it's lets brilliant. you know how how part of that whole idiom and that whole idea that was shared by those people is mm. you know it really summed itself up. I mean, it's, such, it's so simple. Love is the message, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but yeah, it, it absolutely. It is timeless. I mean, I've played it a million mm. times, uh, uh, mm-hmm. lots of different different remixes. Your favorite is the Danny Crivet, is that right? It's the Danny Crivet re-edit, which is like 1981 or 82, I think. Yeah, that's just, mm. I don't know. I I, I I I like that one a lot. It's the one with the mm. uno, dos, tres, tres cuatro. cuatro. <laughs> I do. How can you I resist that? that. <laughs> I, also love, I also love Sal Sol. Um, ooh, I love it because it's got the rap and, and it's got yeah. the do 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 yeah, that's a great bit, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just love that, too. Um, it's Yeah, it's great, but it, it's all the same. It's all the same mm. song, <laughs> you know? And um, Vince Montana, Heavy Vibes, which is, a, you know, a, a sort of riff on that. And you can't really call it a cover or, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a riff, you know? Because yeah, he's and it's... part of MFSB, so it's like, you know, somebody taking it and and uh, and and morphing it. And then, of course, it's been sampled so many times it's know. still it's still coming out as well i mean in the last few years i think dimitri from paris did a fantastic edit of it mm. and um eminem remixes when they did the barry white things i think mm-hmm. year before last there's a version of it on there that is just i don't know there's something great about the fact that this track has had so many lives yeah it's recognizable all the way through everyone's yeah. had a piece of it everyone's added a piece to it yeah. It is truly a community song, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's a great, that's a great, uh, great 
way to put it. And it's, yeah, it's like a quilt that people just keep coming and adding their own little patches to. <laughs> I love it. So where did you first hear it? When, when did it come into your life and what were you doing? See, that's, I don't even remember. See, it, I, it, that's one of those, this is one of those songs that kind of seeps into your mm. life like water. I know that I heard it in New York coming here. I'm sure I heard it before. Um, <clears throat> I obviously heard it in Madonna's Vogue, and then the first time I heard this, I was like, wait, what? Oh, uh, uh, oh, oh. Um, I, I can't even remember if it's in Paris is Burning. I probably heard, that's probably, I would imagine, if it's in there, that's probably the first place I heard yeah, it. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it was really, it was really, m mine and my husband, Seth, we, we met in, um, 2000 well we started dating in 2003 we met in 1999 but um or 2001 uh we it's kind of our collective love of mm. disco it really cemented this song as a fixture in my life mm. and yeah. uh and my love of disco really grew through my relationship with my husband who who grew up loving all of the stuff and was introduced to it at a very young age by his older sisters. You need a good old sister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unless he got a mom like yours. Yeah. 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 He, he had some pretty good, he had some pretty good musical education. It's, he comes from a line of party people as well. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. Uh, the genes must be amazing between the two of you. He actually, one, one thing that I love is his, uh, his grandmother on his dad's side the, and, and his mom's side are a whole, a whole party crew as well. On his dad's side, uh, his grandmother was part of seven sisters, and each sister owned a bar. Whoa! <laughs> oh that's a that's a that? musical that needs to be yeah. made. Yeah, seven bars for seven brides, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would pay to watch that. Yeah, it'd be good. Or it's like a you know, I mean, and they're we're talking about an Irish family, Irish Polish family, mm -hmm. so. In like Youngstown, Ohio. I mean, this is a this is this is the makings of like a, you know, HBO definitely, epic. Definitely. You know, where's David Simon? <laughs> you need to pitch yeah. this. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, Animatronic, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank I just you like so much. it's amazing to speak. Uh, you know, all the guests we, we have on the podcast are obviously music fans in their blood, but it's it's so amazing to speak to someone who has such taste and passion going out in all different directions. It almost feels cruel to have asked you to only pick three photographic memories. Well, you know, you, I, yes, I'll, I'll come back and share more anytime you like. I mean, it's just, it's so nice to be able to talk about music and, and that's, that's what I love to do. I just, yeah, I, I, uh, I love knowing history and I love knowing about, you know, about how things are made. And, and it's, it's been a real pleasure to, um, to have a job that, that, that that's what you do. You know, yeah. I sit and I sit and <laughs> spend four days coming through the dance charts of 1996, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's a pleasure. It, it, it's, it's fun to do. Yeah. yeah it what, really what? pours out of you, I must say. You can really feel mm. the, the genuine warmth that the you've got for the subject. Yeah. What, what's coming next then? 
we have we have a project that we've worked on together remotely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. Um, I have a, a documentary on divas coming up on on BBC uh, mm-hmm. that will. Be, I'm not quite sure when the transmission date on that mm-hmm. is. Um, and um, I've also been working with the VNA Dundee on their exhibition called Night Fever. Um, designing club culture 1960 through today, which is all about how uh, nightlife has been designed from audio and visual to flyers and music and all this of that kind of great. stuff. Sounds so. like we need to make a day trip up to Dundee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it, it's a great exhibition. And, and it's so funny because my husband and I have had the exhibition catalog for two, three years, we've been looking at it for that long, and then the V&A calls and asked, asked if I might be interested in uh, helping them with the exhibition, and I was just like, <laughs> yeah. well, you couldn't have asked a better person. Uh, yes! <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, hopefully getting back to DJing live a little bit and, and ongoing work on dance devotion, which has been so, so great and such a lifeline during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, it's absolutely been brilliant talking to you. I was going to ask you one so thing much. quickly yeah. because um, I'm a real fan of uh, unusual, weird instruments. Oh yeah, okay. And, and I, I noticed while while doing the the, the standard Wikipedia trawl, which you have to do mm. for everyone you meet, um, you played the glass harmonica. Yeah, yeah. It's Tell us right, about that because right that is me. a. Have you got one? Yeah. yeah. No way. Yeah, that's one of those like weird. Ex- that's that's the weird extravagant thing that I bought as a, a in my time as a pop star was a glass. Oh, harmonica. I love that. What a good I love that. Um, yeah, I actually haven't played it in a long time, and it's it's so, it's yeah, it's a it because our house has been under construction and there's mm. it's just dusty all the time. You don't want to like put out this glass instrument yeah um but um yeah it's one of the weirdest most haunting and lovely instruments i've ever heard and it's really fun to play and mine is made out of quartz glass so it i you know if you're into the uh you know like vibes of like crystal vibration (laughs) it's like super healing yeah that sounds Mm -hmm. fabulous but you wouldn't want to go on tour with a glass instrument though would you yeah actually (laughs) my husband and i thought about that we were we thought you know how would you do that you would you would have to buy it a seat next to you yeah absolutely i think be like the Stradivarius that travels first class. Lord have mercy. I can't even imagine. And like, oh, God, we broke one. (laughs) How do you? you, uh, Yeah, I don't know. You would probably have to travel with two, a backup one. Well, I'm going to try really hard to find an example on on Spotify for our playlist of someone playing with a glass (laughs) harmonica. Yeah, yeah. Because... I, I I love a, I love an odd instrument, and that is, as you say, it's such a beautiful, haunting sound, and it's so it is. unusual to look at and watch someone play yeah. as well. I mean, it's, yeah. It's a Have great you thing. ever seen a crystal bachet? No. It's Sounds like, like a great night out. That it's like I know. Yeah. It would be a, yeah. It would be a great a great venue name. Um, it's like an harmonica, but it uses rods instead of bowls, and so it's uh, I think it's B A C H E T, and uh, you can look that up. And oh, yeah. uh, and and it's yeah, it's these rods and they're kind of, it's kind of set out like a almost like an organ, like one of those old time organs with the multiple uh, tiers of mm. of uh, keys. It's very odd and really cool. <laughs> also very strange. very cool indeed. Yeah. Sounds yeah. Amazing. 
Well, like everything you've mentioned today, it is very cool and very brilliant. So thank you so much for coming <laughs> on What Goes Around. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with both of you. And likewise. Thanks for having me. And dear listener, thank you so much for listening to the show today. We really enjoyed making it. It was a lovely chat to Animatronic. Thank you so much for coming on. Next week, we have an absolute music legend on the books. Yes, the one and only Brian Jackson from the Midnight Band and co-writer of many great songs like Winter in America and The Bottle with Gil Scott Heron. Brian Jackson is back on the show next week and honestly, what a lovely, lovely man he is. It's a great listen, so do tune in. And if you can, like us, subscribe to us, tell a friend about us. We need to grow and only you can help that happen.